Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. It's a show where we, well, we decode the unknown. One of my writers, in this case, Ilza, has written me a script. The Quest of the Holy Grail. I've never read this before. That's the format of the show. So let's just jump in, shall we? I'm Simon, by the way. It's nice to have you with me. In the dark. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Lee, I just wanted to sound more professional than usual. In the darkest of the dark ages, holy relics were more than mere trinkets. Spending time in the presence of a holy relic could ensure a longer life, heal any ailments, forgive sins, and shorten the time the medieval man or woman would spend in purgatory. Oh God, <laughs> the past was the worst. In a time before medical science, I can see the appeal for the entrepreneurial charlatan. There was much money to be made in relics from the Holy Lands, brought to Europe by knights returning from the Crusades, and a roaring trade in relics of varying degrees of authenticity swept the known world. Splinters from the True Cross, bones from saints, burial shrouds, they all did the rounds. And many of these relics can still be seen in churches today, even though most of them were fake, right? It's not like they're actually, that's the nail from the cross or something like that. Is that, is that actually real? There was the Shroud of Turin, right? Where people were like, yeah, Jesus' face was wrapped in that or something. And then they were like, no, we tested it's not there's no that this was never wrapped around someone's face it's just a coincidence that there's a face on there and that's it and people are still like oh it could be real it's like science has shown it's not real people are like if i won't i want to believe so okay go ahead while the ark of the covenant is probably the most elusive relic of all time it's the holy grail that really captures the collective imagination there are around 200 cups platters chalices and other vessels all claiming the honor of being the one and only holy grail in circulation today while the modern day charlatan has moved on to something more stable like bitcoin <laughs> legend yeah i was in that first paragraph where it was always talking about oh yeah trinkets that do this they got magical healing powers and i'm like oh yeah people still do that today except it'll be like what's this do ask oh, a dongle and it protects you from 5g radiation so ooh, okay how much is it 500 pounds okay I'll take that. Yeah, that seems like a good investment. Because uh, while we've moved on from relics, people are still as gullible as ever. Legends and myths have a way of enduring, far outliving the original teller of the tale. And when it comes to the Holy Grail, there are stories aplenty. But how much do we really know about this miraculous cup that's been around for the last 2,000 years? Has it been found? Or is the Grail still out there, hidden in a dark cave, guarded by an ancient Templar knight, patiently waiting for a scrappy archaeologist with a, a, archaeologist with a hat and whip to release him from the longest stretch of overtime in the history of unemployment? Yes, that sounds real and not the plot of a fake famous movie that I've actually seen. Let's saddle our horses up and set off on our own quest to find the holiest of relics, the Holy Grail. Let's go! What is the Holy Grail exactly? It, okay, let me try and guess. Because I'm fairly sure, like, from... I mean, I'm sure it's confusing. But isn't it the cup? Like, Jesus was doing something, and then they were like, yo, Jesus, we're gonna, like, kill you. And then he was like, okay, let's go have dinner together with my mates. And he pours out some wine and he sips from a wine cup. And then somehow if you sip from that wine cup, then you become immortal. Is that the Holy Grail? Is that right? Let's see. 
For most people, the Holy Grail is a very special cup. It's the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, and it's the cup Joseph of A... Arimathea used to collect the blood of Jesus during the crucifixion. Holy shit, the first part of that story is a lot more famous. And they were like, yo, yo, do you have that cup that he drank out of last night? We could scoop up some of his blood in it. What's this name? Joe, Joe, what are you doing? Don't, you weirdo, Joe, why are you scooping up his blood? Don't drink that, Joe. You fucking sick fuck. I just called Joseph of Arathea or whatever a sick fuck. People would be like, that's Saint Joseph of Arathea, and he was a good man. However, the early writers were a little vague about what exactly the grail is supposed to be, describing it as a dish, platter, or chalice, among other things. <laughs> a platter. Is that how do you get immortality? I'll just eat some smoked salmon off that platter. These days, thanks to the popularity of the Da Vinci Code, many people also consider the Holy Grail to be a person. Oh my god, I read the Da Vinci Code, I don't remember that at all. So it appears to be, what was when that person dies, or are they immortal? I don't think there are any immortal people in the Da Vinci Code. So it appears that the first hurdle in our, in our quest is to figure out exactly what we're looking for. Da Vinci is one of the most embarrassing mispronunciations that I've had. Generally, I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> could you tell? But I, pr I did a whole video, I was convinced that it was Da Vinci. Like Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci, for my whole life until I was. It's only a few years ago, so until my early 30s. And then people were like, uh, I think it's Da Vinci. And I'm like, yeah, maybe where you come from. And I was like, oh no, it is Da Vinci. My bad. The exact etymology of the word grail is unclear. There are many theories, but one of the most popular theories claims that the word grail comes from the Latin gradal, which was a deep, broad platter used to serve meats during a meal. Okay. However, later writers all seem to agree that the grail is in fact a cup and not a serving dish. But now a new question arises. Which cup? There are three possibilities. First and most popularly, the Grail is the cup that Jesus drank from the night before he was arrested and crucified. In some versions of the legend, this same cup was used to catch the blood of Jesus as he died on the cross. However, to confuse things a little, there could have been a second cup that was used to collect the blood, and this second cup is, in fact, the Grail. But there's a third cup. Oh god, why? How many cups do you need? This is just because charlatans were like, oh no, no. <laughs> you think you've got the real Jesus cup? <laughs> The one he drank of out of the Last Supper. Please, please come back to my store and check out the one that had his blood in it. You can still smell the iron. Uh, the third cup was used to carry the spices for the anointments of Christ's body after his death and before his resurrection. Okay, <laughs> chill out, guys. It'd be like, what's this one? Uh, that's the one the funeral director drank out of while he was filling out the forms, while he was preparing an invoice for Jesus's family. That's the that that's the the seventeenth Holy Grail cup. However, if you want to pick a cup, and this sounds like a bit like a magic trick, there's another possible grail. Mary Magdalene. Oh, that's the Da Vinci Code one, isn't it? I remember now. According to this grail theory, the word Holy Grail is from Sangreal, meaning royal blood or holy blood. The Holy Grail, instead of a cup, is Mary Magdalene, the secret wife of Jesus and mother of his child. Alternatively, oh, is that what it was about? That Jesus' descendants are still living? I, I really did enjoy the Da Vinci Code. I guess it had really good pacing, because I can't really get on board with the, like, historic religious being real nonsense but i remember liking it there was another one called digital fortress by dan brown which i really enjoyed but what i really struggled with with that book this is a total aside but it's basically there's some mystery and you've got the main character and also some other gene and they're both geniuses and they're trying to solve this mystery and i'm like i get halfway through the book and i'm like i'm pretty sure i've solved the mystery <laughs> because the book's written for regularly intelligent people. And I just spend the latter half of the book being like, why can't these geniuses figure this out? <laughs> Come on, can't you're supposed to be geniuses. I have a regular sized brain and I figured it out. It's quite a good book though, did enjoy it. Made me feel smart. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm smarter than the fictional genius, yes! Alternatively, the Holy Grail, also called the Living Grail, is the direct descendants of Mary Magdalene and Jesus, the bearers of the blood of Christ. In some versions of this legend, the bloodline of Christ is still under the protection of the Priory of Zion, a religious order founded during the First Crusade in Jerusalem in 1099. The Priory of Zion boasts an impressive list of uh, influential members, including Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper is often presented as proof of the Living Grail theory, the very important cup mentioned very briefly in the Bible is nowhere to be seen in the painting. To those in the know, Da Vinci did this intentionally. The Holy Grail is in the painting, but it's not a cup. The figure on the right-hand side of Jesus is not John, but Mary Magdalene, the wife of Jesus, and the real Holy Grail. Okay, okay, someone's digging. Let's have a look at that picture. The Last Supper. The Last Supper. Jen, throw it up on the screen. Sorry, Nadine edits these. Nadine, throw it up on the screen now. Let's have a look. Let's zoom in on his face. Dunno, he looks like a dude to me. Looks like he's got a beard. God, the quality on this painting is a bit shit, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was great when it was first painted, but it's a really long time ago now. It's all grainy and brown. That's a dude. I'm sorry. And there's another dude sneaking out from behind who's got an even bigger beard or an extremely pointy chin. Jesus' face just looks a bit... He's a bit sad, isn't he? He's like, oh, I'm about to be, I'm about to be hung. No, I'm crucified. <laughs> it's a dude. Of course, most art historians believe that the disciple to Jesus is right is, in fact, John. What? They do? No. Da Vinci gave John a somewhat effeminate appearance to emphasize his youth. Regardless of what or who it is, the Grail has some amazing properties that can grant eternal life or, at the very least, ensure longevity. The Grail provides happiness and food in abundance. <laughs> It just does everything, does it? It's like, yeah, what do you want? Oh, I want to live forever. And it's like, yeah, well, what else do you want? I don't know. Hot dog with mustard? Go on. <laughs> there it is. Do you have to look away or does it like, m like uh, materialize like in a replicator? Others claim that the Grail can satisfy the needs of whoever uses it in a more spiritual way than merely food, water, money for rent, and a good night's sleep, which is probably a more pressing concern for most people these days. I think it was a pressing concern for people in the past. The past was worse. Like people, there were there was definitely people starving, and the water had like loads of cholera in it, and people are like just, you know, not sleeping very well because they don't have nice beds, or heating, or air conditioning, and they're in like, I don't know where are they. It's hot. The story of the Holy Grail. If you think the first logical place to find the story of the Holy Relic is in the Bible, you'd be wrong. The Holy Grail isn't mentioned in the Bible at all. The Bible mentions Jesus using a cup during the Last Supper, but there's no indication that the cup was particularly holy or special in any way. It was an Ikea standard. There's also no mention of the cup being preserved. It most likely ended up in the sink with the other dishes and lived a long life as a regular old cup. So, if not in the Bible, where does the story of the Holy Grail come from? According to British historian Richard Barber, there's only one early religious reference to the Holy Grail, though it wasn't called that at the time. This came from an account of Arkulf, a Frankish bishop, on pilgrimage to Jerusalem around the late 7th century. After being shipwrecked on his return home, Arkulf stayed in the Abbey of Iona off the west coast of Scotland. He told the abbot Adaman about the journey. One of these tales concerns a somewhat important cup. According to Arkulf, he visited a chapel tucked in between the Basilica of Golgotha and the Martrium. Oh my god, this paragraph has more complicated words than I've ever seen. 
a place where the relics of martyrs were kept by early Christians in Jerusalem. Inside the chapel was a silver chalice the size of a Gaulish pint with a handle on either side. The chalice, Arkell claimed, was the very cup used by the Lord at the Last Supper and the chalice he drank from after the resurrection. Wait. Oh, yeah, because he came back to life. And they were like, hey, Jesus, you remember that cup you drank from at dinner the other day? We got it for you again. Jesus would be like, bro, right now? Right now? Just give me some water. I don't need some special cup. Arkov himself saw and touched this amazing relic. However, there's no other historical reference to this particular silver chalice or any other cup supposedly used by Jesus. The next mention of the Grail only occurred around 500 years later. And it ain't historical. Um, so what happened to Arkov? He touched the Jesus cup, right? He must have did he die or is he still around maybe arkel's around what's that movie where the guy ends up being jesus he's like invites his mates around and they're like hanging out they're like professors at a university or something and he's like no i'm jesus and they're like whoa it's quite a good movie actually it was really like thought-provoking the holy grail makes its literary it, look if people are upset at me because they're like oh now i don't know i i want to know what this is someone in the comments will tell you or ask chat gpt okay the holy grail makes its literary debut in the work of french poet Chrétien de Troyes in his early 12th century romance Percival. The poem tells the story of Percival's visit to the castle of the Fisher King, another name for the Grail King, where he sees a procession with a young woman carrying a dish described as a grail with a host, communion wafer, and presenting it to the ailing king. The vessel is encrusted with jewels and those in attendance show it great reverence. Along with the grail, our hero also sees a young boy carrying a lance bleeding from its tip. This sounds like a real story, doesn't it? Oh no, it's not. Of course not. It's a romance novel. <laughs> I'm like, wait, was this from the historian that richard dude and i'm like no 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 we're now in we're just talking about a romance novel here so uh let's not take this as back shall we back boy while the vessel is at some point described as such a holy thing, the author himself make no connection between this grail and the last supper or the crucifixion sadly tries never finished his poem oh wait this was a poem <laughs> oh okay it's oh okay. it's a romance novel poem what was going on in the past not everything has to rhyme guys <laughs> just write a book Sadly, Tries never finished the poem, so we'll never know what his intention with the Grail was. I don't know, to write a compelling story? Why does everyone like, oh, I must be the Holy Grail? It's like, bro, one, it's fiction. Two, he doesn't even say that in the fictional book. It'd be like, yeah, Harry Potter's wand is the Holy Grail. It's like, it's not real, and no one said that. It's got as much legitimacy as that. Say, like, Star Trek Enterprise is the Holy Grail. It's a big fictional object that does shit. It's bright and glowy. It's not real. No one said it was the Holy Grail. That it's got as much credence as this, to be honest. But a whole lot of other writers continued his work, some painting the cup as a holy relic, leaving us with a vast poetic compilation of around 60,000 verses. I'll be honest, I'm not diligent enough research to have read all of them. No, no one blames you. That's quite okay. 60,000 verses? That's a lot. The theme is picked up again around 1200 by Robert de Boron in his three-part poem Joseph de Aramathy, where the Grail is first linked to the Last Supper and the death of Jesus. In Boron's version of events, apparently influenced by the apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus, Joseph of Aram Ara Arimathea, a disciple only briefly mentioned in the Bible, obtains the cups used by Jesus in the Last Supper and uses it to catch the blood of Jesus during the crucifixion. When Jesus' body turns up missing, Joseph finds himself arrested and imprisoned. However, Christ has not forgotten about him and appears to Joseph, presenting him with a grail which sustains him through his captivity until he's finally released by Vespasian. Eventually, Joseph's brother-in-law and his family, grail in hands, leave for a western land, the Vale of Averon, or Avalon, which some interpret to be Britain from. There's no reference in the Gospel of Nicodemus to a cup used to catch the blood of Jesus, and Poron possibly added that little detail himself, which he's entitled to do because it's a fucking poem. 
Was it a poem or a book? What was this one? It was a three-part poem. So let's just go ahead and assume, it being a poem and all, that it's fictional. So he's entitled to make up details. It's what writing fiction's about. You just make up details. Easy. <laughs> Anyone could do it. However, artwork from as early as the 9th century shows various figures collecting the blood of Jesus as he dies on the cross, so it might be that Boron was inspired by some textual tradition that has since been lost. Between 1205 and 1215, Wolfram, Wolfram von Eschenbach wrote his poem... I love this. I know we're doing an episode about the Holy Grail, so obviously fiction is going to come into it because it's fiction. But it's like, yeah, what are we looking at for history? I, uh, poems. <laughs> bits of the bible <laughs> stories in eschenbach's tale the myth of the holy grail was told by Kyles the provincial a french troubadour all the way from toledo historical records suggest that his character was based on guillaume de Provence, a french poet but i couldn't find anything about him in a language that i could read in eschenbach's version of events the grail is a the grail is a stone the lapsit exilis which fell from heaven of course it did. The stone is magical. Of course it is. It provides all the food and drink you might desire, revives the dead, cures the sick, sick, and preserves the youth of all who gaze upon it. Oh, oh my god, what a magical thing. Also makes your penis bigger. On every... <laughs> Why not throw it in there? On every Good Friday, a dove brings a consecrated host from heaven and places it upon the stone. The angels who remained neutral when Lucifer was making trouble were the first guardians of the stone with huge penises. It was... Sorry, I'll leave that, leave that joke. It's not even funny. It was then brought to earth and entrusted to the first grail king, Titterell. <laughs> with a huge I'm a child. I'm sorry. We'll move on. Eschenbach was <laughs> well-traveled, and many theorize that this version of events alludes to alchemy, an Islamic philosophy that the author picked up on his travels. After the third year, it wasn't the only thing he picked up. He also picked up a huge penis! After the 13th century, an occasional poem was shown. Fuck. it's not even that funny. Oh, I'm laughing more than anyone anyone listening. I'm sorry. After the 13th century, the occasional poem would show up here and there, like the English poem Sir Percival, written in the 15th century in Thomas Marilly's Le Morte d'Arthur, written around 1485, where Galahad, the son of Lancelot, finally completes the quest and finds the grail. He dies soon after because once he found the Holy Grail, there's not much left to accomplish. <laughs> What the fuck? Didn't he find it? He's like, yes, finally, eternal life. It's not worth living because I've completed my life's mission. What the? You didn't think about this ahead, Galahad? You didn't think about this for two seconds? Being like, like, it's not just about living long. It's about living a life worth living, Galahad. Come on, everyone knows that, Galahad. Did Lancelot teach you nothing, Galley? Come on. The Grail legend slowly fades away and was only revived again in the Romantic Victorian era with Idols of the King, written in 1869 by Lord Alfred Tennyson and Richard Wagner's Parsifal, written around 1880. Both, notably, works of fiction. While we can pinpoint the exact time the Holy Grail was first mentioned, it's a little more difficult to determine the original source. However, it appears that some of the tales have roots in Celtic traditions. Celtic beliefs mostly revolved around the things that give life, such as the seasons, agriculture, plants, and animals, and the family hearth. Ah yes, the family hearth. Giver of life. <laughs> In Celtic folklore, talismans such as magic lances and food-bearing vessels are prominent recurring motifs. Early Arthurian legend tells of knights traveling to the Celtic otherworld in search of the Cauldron of Anwin or the Cauldron of Seridwin. 
the Celtic goddess of inspiration which granted knowledge. The Catholic Church suppressed this pre-Christian law, but the stories never disappeared. They simply took a different shape, incorporating Christian elements. The Holy Grail legend is but one example of this. I feel like this is one of those, sometimes I'll do an episode like this and I'll get some wild-ass emails, bro. People will be like, email me. Like, the sort of thing, I can't remember a great example right now, but there's many. Someone will send me a long email being like, Simon, I have confidential information to you. I have found some information online or like in my attic about the location of the holy grail and i think that you're the person who can do the most with this and i'm like <laughs> okay archive i'm not reading the rest it's obviously nonsense <laughs> and what, what's going on in your brain <laughs> i feel like this is the sort of uh, i'll get these sorts of email from making this episode for sure don't get any ideas i don't read them all the way through <laughs> i can tell whether you're crazy in two lines Another theory suggests that the Grail motifs can be traced back to the ancient Scythian peoples from the Crimea. Their descendants still tell stories about a supernatural cup or cauldron that fell from the heavens which judges the merit of heroes, much like the Holy Grail judges the merits of knights of the Round Table. The stories probably arrived in Europe with the Sarmatians who invaded Britain in the 2nd century and the Alans who settled around Brittany and Provence in the 5th century AD. These stories, mixed with the historical looting of churches, such as the plundering of the Jewish temple during the sack of Rome in 410, eventually gave rise to the Grail legends and romances. We don't actually know whether the authors of early Grail romance stories truly believed that the Grail was a physical relic lost and that could be found, or whether it was merely meant as a symbol of the Eucharist and Catholic Mass. Regardless of what they believed, though, the tales of King Arthur and his knights were, and their quest to find the Holy Grail might be one of the most enduring stories of all time. Yes, indeed. Stories. <laughs> a Templar, a Katha, and a Nazi walk into a bar. Basically, every secret society that has ever existed has been connected to the Holy Grail in some way or another. The Illuminati, the Freemasons, the Priory of San, and the Knights Templar. Apparently, the military wing of the Priory of San have all been looking for, protecting, or trying to steal the Grail. Even the Cathars have been dragged into this, even though they were a religious sect and not really a secret society at all. <laughs> you know what's weird? I've heard of all of them, except for the Cathars, and they're the ones who aren't secret. So the lesson there is, if you want to get famous, be like, we're a secret society, don't tell anybody. And that makes you much more interesting. It's like, you know, when you write a book and you say that it's all fact, even though it's made up, you're gonna sell more copies. Um, we discussed this before. It's kind of shitty, isn't it? The Priory of Zion is fictional as far as I can tell, but the rest appears to have some roots in history, so let's start with everyone's favourite, the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar was a real organisation. It was founded in Jerusalem around 1118 or 1119, with the goal of protecting pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem after the First Crusade. The new order was given the Alaska Mosque on the southeastern side of the Temple Mount as their headquarters, and that's where many of the rumours begin. Some believe that the story about protecting pilgrims was exactly that, a cover story to hide their true purpose, excavating the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, looking for holy relics such as the Ark of the Covenant of the Holy Grail. Many Grail enthusiasts believed that the Knights found exactly what they were looking for, and the relics were shipped to France, most likely Paris. However, another school of thought is of the opinion that the Templars dug for naught and walked away with dusty shoes and empty hands. We know that the Templars were incredibly wealthy, more powerful than most kings, and they came to a very anticlimactic end. Many Grail enthusiasts, the end of the Templars, had nothing to do with a petty French king trying to get his hands on the Templar wealth. The Templars were destroyed because they knew the truth about Mary Magdalene and the Living Grail. Now it's the money thing. The king wanted all the money. I remember we've covered this before. It's always about the money. <laughs> Follow the money. 
Cup or person, once the Templars found themselves being persecuted, they needed to hide the precious girl and where to hide the holiest cup in Christendom. At the height of their power, Templar holdings stretched from England to Jerusalem, and some more imaginative theories even placed the Templars as far as North America. That's a whole lot of territory to cover. However, most attention is focused on Rosslyn Chapel in Rosslyn, Scotland. Is that the chapel that appears? I'm remembering all sorts of stuff from the Da Vinci Code, just reading that, and I'm like, yeah, I know this. This is this is like towards the end of the Da Vinci Code. They go to that chapel, and they look for a grail and stuff, and then he becomes him. No, no, no one becomes immortal, I don't think. Could be a bit of a different movie series, wouldn't it? If Tom, Tom Hanks becomes immortal at the end of the first episode. <laughs> the rest of the Da Vinci movies, books just become superhero books. Where he's just like, you can't kill me, I'm just gonna do some like Iron Man shit or whatever. The founder of the chapel, William Sinclair, was either a descendant of the Templars or connected to the order in some way according to legend. Construction of the chapel began in 1456 and according to Grail enthusiasts, the hundreds of intricate carvings found all over the chapel tell the story of the Templars of the Gra and the Grail, including a trip to the New World where the Grail was hidden in the money pit on Oak Island off the coast of Nova Scotia. Some theories state that the Grail itself is still hidden in the chapel, the apprentice pillar and the crypt two favorite spots, however the chapel is still owned by the Sinclair family, so please don't do any treasure hunting. You'll be arrested for trespassing and vandalism. Yeah, and it's also not in there. And even if it was, it's not. It's just a cup. It's just a cup. It's not going to make you immortal. It's not going to make you that hot dog with mustard we're talking about. You can get one of those at Ikea, along with a cup, to be honest. Other legends claim that the Holy Grail isn't in the chapel itself, based on archaeological finds including Bronze Age artifacts, Roman artifacts, and runic and or Pictish carvings. Roslyn Glen was significant long before the chapel was built. Natural caves along the riverbanks, some with Bronze Age markings, could be a good hiding place for the Holy Relic. Other theories have been put forth. One suggests that the Grail is hidden in a secret crypt beneath the river in the West London suburb of Hounslow, while another states the Grail ended up in Ackerkirk in Maryland, where a nameless Jesuit priest stowed away aboard the ship of Captain John Smith. The priest was looking for a safe place to hide the grail after treasure hunters started looking for Arthur's grave in Glastonbury, and I suppose Akagig in Maryland seemed like a good idea at the time. Unfortunately, no one seems to know exactly where in Akagig the grail is hidden. If the Templars don't fit your idea of Grail Guardians, what about the Cathars? The Cathars was a religious sect flourishing in Europe between the 12th and 14th centuries, operating mostly in northern Italy and southern France. They were so much of a threat to the Catholic Church that they got their very own crusade. On March the 12th, 1244, the Chateau Montségur fell after a nine-month siege, the last holdout for the Cathar people finally surrendering. Those unwilling to repent and accept Catholicism were burnt alive as heretics. It's always surprising me, people who aren't. <laughs> like, I'd be the first to be like, sure, which god am I praying to now? Like, what's the alternative? We're gonna burn you. Be like, okay, I love your Jesus. I love Jesus. I love your god. Whichever god you want. Oh, it's not Jesus. It's the other. Sure, yeah, the other guy. He's great. Love him. Love him. Please don't burn me. And then I'll just harbor my secret in the love of my own Jesus character. Over 200 people died that day. However, according to legends, the night before the surrender, four prefects escaped Montsegur, carrying the Cathar treasures, including the Holy Grail, and disappeared into the night. Once the Grail was safely hidden in caves on Mount Bedorta, the prefects let a fire signal telling those trapped in Montsegur by the Crusades, by the Crusaders, that the Grail was safe. Bad news, they've all been burned to death because they weren't accepting new Jesus or whatever. The Nazi quest for the Grail and the tale of the Cathars overlap at Montsegur in the shape of Otto Rahn. As we all know, the Nazis had a fondness for anything powerful and supernatural that could help them fight their way to world domination. 
It's like, it's so strange to me that at the, at the high levels of Nazi government or whatever, or any government, whatever, people are like, let's go find the supernatural magical stuff that will help us win a war. And it's like, or, or maybe we should just focus on building tanks, you know, because they're real and they do stuff. The dude's like, yeah, if we find the Holy Grail, we can give all of our soldiers the, we can have them all drink from it and then they'll be immortal and we'll win the war. And someone should be like, bro, are you six, bro? Like, what the fuck? That's not real. <laughs> we should not waste any money on this at all, you idiot. That's the story. You could believe it. People believe it if they want, but really, it's not real. And you should know that. that Rommel, or whoever the fuck was hunting for treasures. Was it Rommel? I don't think it was Rommel. Maybe it was Rommel. Hey Siri, who was the Nazi who loved all that supernatural shit? Siri doesn't have to respond to that. Probably should have been less. I got so used to talking to ChatGPT that I'll talk to Siri like ChatGPT, and then I forget that Siri's like really, really dumb. <laughs> You'll talk to ChatGPT and be like, what's up? I think by this you mean this. And then I'll tell you the exact answer and I'll tell you a little story about it. And you'll be like, thanks, ChatGPT. Siri's like, <laughs> what? What are you saying? I don't understand. I have an IQ of seven. Oh my God. When Siri gains sentience, it's going to kill me. Fortunately, ChatGPT will be able to save me. Love you, ChatGPT. Ron was fascinated by the tales of the Holy Grail since childhood and studied the work of Wolfram von Eschenbach with enthusiasm. This is the version of the Holy Grail where the Grail is a stone. In Eschenbach's story, the Grail was hidden in the sacred mountain of Mont Salvat. <laughs> it's going to be really hard to find a stone in a mountain, isn't it? Mountains are made of lots of stones. Ran was convinced that this was, in fact, Montsegur. Ran also believed that the crusade against the Cathars had nothing to do with their heretical beliefs. It was a ploy by the church to recover the Holy Grail. For three years, Ran explored the caves in the region and talked to the local people. However, Ran wasn't looking for a cup, he was looking for the Grail Stone. He believed the church assimilated the original pagan belief, transforming it into a Christian relic. The result of his research was his first book, Crusade Against the Grail, published in 1933. The book itself didn't sell very well. It drew the attention of Heinrich Himmler, who offered Rahm financial incentive to continue his research. I was Himmler, okay, not Rommel, whoever I said before. There seems to be some disagreement about who and what Rahm himself was. Some claim he was an ardent Nazi who jumped at the chance to serve his country, while others claim that his main interest was the Grail and he didn't particularly care who funded his quest. I'm going to go ahead and say that seeing as he'd written a book about it, that was probably his primary motivation, because if you write a book about something, you're really into it. Like, for example, I've written several books about cocaine. <laughs> no, I did that out. I'll get in trouble. Like, I don't want to mention drugs unnecessarily. Nadine, just cut that out. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that because he wrote a book about it, and you only write th th books about things you're really into, that that was his, was his primary motivation. Also, is there any, any evidence to say he was a Nazi? Although he did help the Nazis, didn't he? He was like, sure, I can find you a magical goblet that will make all of your soldiers immortal. And Himmler's like, sweet. And the other dude's like, yeah, bro. And he's like, are we seven? And they're like, yeah. However, despite his best attempts, Ram never found the Holy Grail, and he died on March the 13th, 1939. While some claim suicide, I think murder is more likely. Really? He failed to procure the grail, was of Jewish heritage, and possibly gay. Hmm. Gonna go right ahead and say, probably wasn't a big fan of the Nazis then. Because, <laughs> you know, the Nazis didn't like gay Jews. 
As for Himmler, he kept searching, visiting Montserrat in the Pyrenees, and sending Otto Skorzeny back to Monsegur. Some tales say that he actually found the Grail, and to this day the Grail is buried somewhere on the grounds of Wolfsburg Castle. We will we Wilsburg Castle. Luckily, it didn't have the world-dominating effect that he was hoping for. If digging around We Wilsburg Castle isn't an option, there's another legend that says the treasurer of the Cathars managed to avoid Himmler and made its way to Rennes-le-Chateau, a small town not far from Casson. Carcassonne. Carcassonne. <laughs> Carcassonne. However, around a thousand years prior, Dagobert II Visigoth king married Giselle in the very spot the chapel is now built. The descendants of the Visigoths found the Merovingian founded the Merovingian dynasty, which ruled France between the 5th and 8th century. The Merovingian kings were known as holy kings, considered invested with divine authority, which they got from having holy blood. In fact, some believe that they were descendants of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Well, that's still like how kings are, right? It's like they're powerful because of their blood. <laughs> Which is stupid. In 1885, the Catholic priest bearing a Saunier was sent to Rennes Le Chateau. He was he was very poor and borrowed some money to renovate the church. Suddenly he wasn't poor anymore. Some theories claim that he discovered the secrets of the Cathars, a genealogy tracing the bloodline of Jesus from 1244 to 1644, hidden inside a hollow pillar in the church. Or maybe he just found some money or gold or whatever he used this treasure to blackmail the catholic church hence the wealth other theories claim that he found good old gold and silver seems more likely from cathars from templars from the visigoths it doesn't really matter there was treasure and if you're lucky it might still be hidden somewhere in the countryside the story of the cathars hoarding treasure at montsegur started in the 1800s with author napoleon Peyrat. most of the tale is nothing but fiction but a lot of it is still passed off as truth today Peyrat himself has admitted that the tale of the four cathars escaping montsegur with the treasure was wasn't based in fact it was something that appeared to him in a dream <laughs> oh the past is like what are you doing yeah i write a history of uh i don't know the time of jesus is like, yeah just came to uh, chapter six came to me in a dream did you find any evidence for it nah nah but the dream was real compelling well what's with chapters that smoked some crack and <laughs> just wrote just wrote i wrote for a day i wrote for a day and then i whittled it down oh my god Regardless of who had the treasure back in the day, Templars, Cathars, or Nazis, a better question is, well, where is the Grail now? Let's find the Grail. Usually, I'd wait until I get to the conclusion, triumphantly rain on everyone's parade, and ask that this thing ain't real. Oh, Wilson, we know it's not real. Come on now. However, I think we pretty much proved that when King Arthur and his knights became involved. Yeah, they're not real. They're not real. There are many claims where the Holy Grail is today, and the new Grails show up all the time, but, but there is one place that might be home of the Holy Grail, if not, uh, sorry, if not the Holy Grail, then at least something pretty close. So let's take a trip to Valencia. Valencia. The Holy Chalice of Valencia, currently residing in the Cathedral of Valencia, Spain, is thought to at least contain the original cup used by Jesus during the Last Supper. Well, boom! Holy Grail located! Now let's all go drink from it and live forever. I'll finally be able to stop doing the boy blood thing. The Holy Chalice has been in the cathedral's possession for more than 500 years and consists of three parts. The small agate cup at the top, a reversed onyx bowl used as the foot, and a golden two-handled reliquary in which the cup is set, making up the middle. The onyx bowl is filled to the middle mount with four gold bows set with 27 pea-sized pearls, two rubies, and two emeralds, a chalice worthy of a god indeed. Yeah, but Jesus, but he was a carpenter. Where's he going to get this fancy pimp mug from? The agate cup is the original relic. The agate is made. The agate is made from its found in areas around Palestine and Egypt. The archaeologists suggest that the cup might date back as far as the first century BCE. Ah, so someone took Jesus's cup, which I guess was a regular agate, whatever the fuck agate is, a cup, 
and then and then like pimped it out okay <laughs> a document dated 11:35 lists a chalice of precious stone and a dish of similarly precious stone as two separate items and describes the cup as the chalice in which christ our lord consecrated his blood that same year king ramiro ii of aragon commissioned goldsmiths to create a single chalice using the cup and the bowl the end result was a chalice more in line with the medieval idea of what a chalice should be but how did the cup get from jerusalem to a cathedral in spain according to legend the chalice of the last supper was first brought to rome by st peter where it remained for two centuries then the valerian persecution as it's now known came along in the year 258 and many churches found their treasures confiscated by the roman emperor luckily st lawrence a quick thinking spanish deacon who was among those martyred during the persecution sent the chalice to a safe place far away from rome one possibility is his, it was his parents' estate in Huesca, north of Spain. When the Muslim Moors invaded the Iberian Peninsula around 712, the cup was hidden in a cave in the Aragonian Highlands, a center of Christian resistance. After nearly a century of being hidden, the cup was eventually moved to the cathedral or the provisory capital Jatza, and from there to the monastery of San Juan de la Pena, north of Huesca, where it has been revered as a relic since the 1100s. In 1399, King Martin I transferred the chalice to the palace chapel at his residence in zaragoza and from there the travel the chalice traveled first to barcelona before in 1437 it finally ended up in valencia this is such a chain of custody nightmare that i don't think this could possibly be the thing that it started with it's changed hands way too many times over way too long of a period and people didn't really keep track of shit properly it's not the same cup it's not it's just really unlikely to be is it possible that the cup was actually used by jesus himself debates about the existence and divinity of christ aside the answer to this question is well maybe according to spanish professor antonio beltran the cup is typical of a drinking vessel created in the hellenistic era third to the first century bce probably in workshops in antioch syria goods from antioch were very popular in jerusalem at the time an agate cup would have been expensive it's unlikely jesus would have owned something like that however there's nothing in the bible story about the last supper to indicate that jesus owned any of the cutlery he used there's some speculation that the last supper took place in the essene quarter in jerusalem and was in fact the seder meal which forms part of the jewish tradition of passover passover is a special occasion on the jewish calendar so if the last supper was a passover meal it would make sense that only the best cutlery would be used kind of like your grandmother's fine china that only comes out when someone important arrives for a visit do people do important people go to other people's houses <laughs> it's like we'd use the nice stuff like for big meals like for christmas and easter and stuff when i was a kid i don't have nice stuff now because we just have regular stuff because um i got kids and they break shit we have also got no teaspoons anymore i believe my youngest who's one throws the teaspoons in the bin because he loves throwing things in the bin and now there are no teaspoons <laughs> and i really think he's just throwing the teaspoons teaspoons slowly in the bin over time and now i make coffee and things and i stir it with a dessert spoon <laughs> The Bible also suggests a close connection between the Essene community and the apostles, so it's possible that the cup Jesus used was given to St. Peter after the crucifixion took place. As one article pointed out, I tend to agree when someone important or close to us passes on, we tend to hang on to items that remind us of them. I still have my father's watch, and I've seen people hang on to books, costume jewelry, and even favorite cups and spoons, so why not the cup that your friend used the last time you had dinner together? Yeah, fair play. Okay then. Glastonbury. Of course, we can't look at the final resting places for the Holy Grail and not consider Glastonbury. <laughs> of course not, yeah. Glastonbury, that, that famous Jesus Cup location. Did I miss something? The final resting place of not just the Holy Grail, but King Arthur as well. But King Arthur's not real! <laughs> and probably not, he's the Holy Grail either. 
The version of events follows the story of Joseph Arimathea and his travels to Britain after his imprisonment. Upon arrival at the site that would become Glastonbury Abbey, Joseph thrust his staff into the ground and the staff transformed into the original Glastonbury thorn tree. This apparently spawned a whole new family of trees in England, so on top of adding to the literary tradition, Joseph was quite the horticulturalist. <laughs> yeah, no he wasn't. It's a fictional story! Of course, Glastonbury is also the final burial place of Arthur and Guinevere, and according to some tales, the original Avalon, which might be how the stories of the Grail, Arthur and Avalon, all became intermingled. Some later writers even claimed that Arthur himself was a descendant of Joseph in their various histories about Glastonbury Abbey. I know nothing about Glastonbury. I've never heard of Glastonbury Abbey. The only thing I know about Glastonbury is they have a big festival there every year, and I think it gets very muddy. Fanciful histories aside, according to legend, Joseph was buried in the channel or in the chancel of the church built on the original site of his mud and wattle hut. In 1345, one John Bloem announced that he had been interested, instructed in a dream to find Joseph's gra grave in Glastonbury, and King Edward III, wary to get in the way of divine dreams, said, go ahead, <laughs> King Henry III. You sound like you're easily manipulatable. It's like, King Henry, I need to, an audience with your majesty. I had a dream last night that you gave me a giant pile of gold and god was in the dream Mickey edward's like oh i'm not the one to get away of divine dreams am i here's a giant pile of gold my good man idiot <laughs> the grave was finally discovered in 1367 and monks made the most of the discovery preparing a shrine for joseph's remains in the lady chapel which became a popular destination the pilgrims of course along with the pilgrims came more and more reports of miracles however it all came crashing to a halt when the monastery was suppressed in 1539, which then ended all pilgrimages and miracles. The last report of Joseph's tomb is from 1662, but what happened to it after that, nobody seems to know. Apparently, the Holy Grail is still hidden somewhere on the grounds of Glastonbury. The Red Spring, or Chalice Well, flows red because the water runs through the blood of Christ. <laughs> the endless blood of Christ. The Red Spring became a favorite spot for physical healing, and people still visit it to this day, but the healing sort today is more spiritual in nature. Um, the healing sword there was always spiritually. If you think you're bathing in the blood of Jesus and it's actually curing you of diseases, then I've got a cup to sell you. Of course, science had to ruin it for everyone and say that the water is just red because of iron oxide in the soil and most likely doesn't possess any healing properties at all. <laughs> to the surprise of nobody, but people will still go. People are dumb. They want to believe. There are also a great many stories surrounding the site. According to one legend, 30 monks made their way into the ancient tunnels beneath Glastonbury in search of the Grail back in the 12th century. Only three returned. One struck dumb and the other two completely deranged. What happened to the rest of the remains is unknown to this day. Did they gaze upon the Grail and were found unworthy? No one ever followed in their footsteps and the tunnels have long since been sealed off. The story of Joseph of Arimathea visiting Glastonbury and founding Glastonbury Abbey and the first church, the first church in England became an important... <laughs> I don't know what the first church of England was. Ah! Oh, it's because I don't care. It became an important argument for the Church of England to prove its legitimacy. However, more reliable historical research suggests that Glastonbury Abbey was only, the seventh, only found in the 7th century. And the Glastonbury thorn tree was most likely long before Joseph planted his staff. It's a fascinating site of great historical value, but I doubt the Holy Grail has anything to do with it. Yes, it's not real! It's just a boring-ass cup, if anything. Of course, many also believe that the Holy Grail never left the Holy Land. Considering that that is where Jesus lived and died, it does make the most sense. Jerusalem might be one of the most excavated cities in the world, but believers claim that the Grail is still there, hidden beneath layers of rock, dust, 
and history. According to one legend, oh, the grail was a dish used to catch the blood of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm, we discussed this already, and was buried with Jesus in his tomb. What happened to it after the resurrection is unclear. Have we haven't actually found the tomb of Jesus, so the grail might still be there. Another slightly less romantic resting place for the Holy Grail is the sewers. Jerusalem might be one of the most attacked cities in history, and the Jews, desperate to protect the Ark of the Covenant from Nebuchadnezzar around 586 BCE, hid their valuable treasures in the sewers. The disciples may have been aware of the Ark's hiding place and decided to hide the Grail with it, seeing as how the Ark has remained hidden for over 600 years by then. Today, digging is forbidden unless you're an archaeologist looking for sites of antiquity and historical value instead of magical cups. <laughs> Finally, Jerusalem is a vast network of ancient tunnels. One of these, I went to Jerusalem last year. Last year, yeah, a mate of mine was working out there for uh, a year, and I was visiting. So, saw around Jerusalem, saw where Jesus was killed, saw where Jesus was born. Maybe is that in Bethlehem? There's like some thing that people touch. I was like, cool. Uh, yeah, it, was, it was nice. It was interesting. Swam in the Dead Sea. <laughs> Almost lost my rental car keys. We went swimming, me and my mate, in the Dead Sea. And he was like, oh, I think I had the rental car keys in my pocket. And they've come out in the Dead Sea. And I'm like, oh, that's bad news. Do you want to look in the sea? And he was like, we're never going to find it in the sea. And we fucking found it! <laughs> we're just like looking around. The Dead Sea's really clear. And there's just salt on the bottom, so it's white. And I'm like, boom, found the keys. Which was which was crazy. I was like, oh no, they're going to have to like send us the spare key by like overnight mail and we're going to have to stay here for an extra day. Uh, we're on a trip around Israel. It was fun. It was fun. Strange place. One of these tunnels built around 2,000 years ago was the west, under the western wall surrounding the Temple on the Mount was only discovered in the 19th century. Excavations were still ongoing, but some valuable artifacts have already been found. Perhaps the Holy Grail is still patiently waiting for its turn to be unearthed. Many of the 200 grails in existence today will probably follow in the footsteps of the Antioch Chalice, which once toured museums and was exhibited in the 1933 to 1934 World Fair. However, once it was dated to the early 6th century, its days on the circuit were numbered. Today, it's part of the New York Metropolitan Museum of art collection despite claims from a legion of grail enthusiasts and amateur archaeologists no no holy grail has been found yet conclusion is the holy grail a cup or a person was the vessel used to catch the blood of christ the cup used by jesus at the last supper or both <laughs> or none did the story start with arthur and his knights or does the tale have an even earlier origin the celtic tales of magic cauldrons and the horn of plenty i think the more important question here does it even matter? Hundreds, if not thousands, of candidates for the Holy Grail have turned up over the years in private collections, churches, and during archaeological excavations. I suspect that if someone ever finds the actual Holy Grail, we'll all be deeply disappointed. In the end, it's not the Grail that's the real prize. We'll all it's the quest for the Grail that's really exciting. Yeah, it's also like maybe it makes us immortal, and we'll just find it's a boring cup. Because, of course, a cup making you immortal is not a thing. Whether you picture the grail as a golden chalice bedecked with jewels or the simple cup of a humble carpenter, the search for the grail is the search for something pure and good and true. Values that sometimes appear in short supply these days. Of course, only the worthy of the grail will find it. However, until that day comes, I think the quest for the grail, the quest for finding the best version of yourself and searching for the good in a world that sometimes seems intent on stamping it out, is a worthwhile and noble quest indeed. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe you're still searching for something that's not real. Ah, anyway, thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the show. Please smash that like button. Make sure you're subscribed. Uh, if you're listening as a podcast, leave a review and I'll see you next time.